0: Welcome to the new BYP Podcasts. I'm going to continue the discussion of Elohim and Jehovah in Mormonism and we're going to compare, contrast, and study how these deity names were utilized in the Bible with excellent biblical scholarship to show us, which is so unfortunate, how confused Mormonism is on the main deities as well as the Godhead. Revelation has not clarified this subject at all, and this is the stuff. This is the material that you will not learn in church. The church does not want you to understand the actual status, nature, or the history of of how the understanding of God has evolved in Mormonism, not through revelation, unfortunately, but through scholarship, Mormon scholarship, not through the prophet as the head of the church teaching correct doctrine for the church. That's not at all what has happened. So this is quite the story. This is one of the most astonishing things I have ever ever learned and i did not get it in church and neither will you and this is going to blow your minds so sit back and enjoy an hour with me while i expound in boyd kirtland's second article this was in dialogue volume 19 number one spring 1986 elohim and jehovah in mormonism and the bible Now today, currently, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints defines the Godhead as consisting of three separate and distinct personages or gods, Elohim or God the Father, Jehovah or Jesus Christ, the Son of God, both in the Spirit and the flesh, and the Holy Ghost. The Father and the Son have physical, resurrected bodies of flesh and bone, but the Holy Ghost is a spirit personage. Jesus' title of Jehovah reflects his pre-existent role as God of the Old Testament. These definitions took official form in The Father and the Son, a doctrinal exposition by the First Presidency and the Twelve in 1916. And this was a culmination of five major stages of theological development in church history. Joseph Smith, Mormonism's founder, originally spoke and wrote about God in terms practically indistinguishable from then-current Protestant theology. He used the roles the personalities, and the titles of the Father and the Son interchangeably in a manner implying that he believed in only one God who manifested himself as three persons. The Book of Mormon, revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants prior to 1835, and Joseph Smith's 1832 account of his first vision all reflect Trinitarian perceptions. He did not Use the title Elohim at all in this early stage, and used Jehovah only rarely as the name of the one God. The 1835 lectures on faith and Smith's official 1838 account of his first vision, both these emphasized the entire separateness of the Father and the Son. The lectures on faith... Did not consider the Holy Ghost to be a personage in any manner, but rather it was defined as the mind of God. Let's see how the lectures put it. There are two personages who constitute the great matchless governing and supreme power over all things, the Father and the Son. The Father being a personage of spirit, glory, and power, possessing all perfection and fullness. The Son, a personage of tabernacle, possessing the same mind with the Father, which mind is the Holy Spirit that bears record of the Father and the Son, and these three are one God. Now the names, Elohim and Jehovah, were both used in association with God the Father, who was also considered to be the God of the Old Testament. Between 1838 and 1844, so for the last six to seven years of Joseph Smith's life, he introduced the concept of an infinite lineal hierarchy of gods. The Book of Abraham describes the creation as being performed by the gods, and the King Follett discourse further describes these gods as a council presided over by a head god clearly a patriarchal superior to God the Father. Elohim was used variously as the name of God the Father, the name of a head God who directed the Father in the creation of the world, and as a plural representing the council of the gods. The name Jehovah was also still associated with the Father, not with Jesus. The Holy Ghost was now generally referred to by Joseph Smith as being a personage. In the 1854 General Conference of the Church, and on many other occasions throughout his life, Brigham Young taught that God the Father was also known as Michael. After creating the earth under the direction of Elohim and Jehovah, his patriarchal superiors in the Council of the Gods. Michael descended from his exalted immortal status to become Adam, the first man, to provide his spiritual progeny with physical tabernacles. While in this fallen condition, his father Elohim, the grandfather of mankind, presided over the earth in his stead. Following his death, Adam returned to his exalted status and presided over Israel using both titles, Elohim and Jehovah. Jesus was begotten by this personage, both spiritually and in the flesh. Between Brigham Young's death and the turn of the century, a mixture of all of the previously discussed theological positions circulated within the church, and this caused much conflict and confusion. To achieve some semblance of harmony between these widely varying ideas, as well as to quell external attacks from anti-Mormon critics of the Adam-God doctrine, Mormon leaders Carefully reformulated Mormon theology around the turn of the century and articulated it in 1916. It is these adjustments that remain as the current doctrine of the church today. As a result, much of the original meaning and the context of the various Godhead references in earlier Mormon scripture and teachings were lost as they were redefined or discarded during this harmonizing process. The Bible was used only as a secondary proof text source for this reformulation of theology, as Mormon sources, regardless of their own extreme diversities, were considered to be more doctrinally sound and pure. Just as the Mormon historical record demonstrates that its leaders have varied in their perceptions of God, modern biblical scholarship has shown that the Bible's own authors had varying perceptions of God. Prior to the Exodus, a multiplicity of gods were understood to exist, each having his own realm of influence on earthly affairs. Israel's earliest beliefs were monaltrous, In other words, other gods were acknowledged to exist, but they were all subject to the God of Israel, who reigned over them in the divine council of the gods. This belief was eventually modified into extreme monotheism, or the belief in only one God, At this stage, the one true God was granted many of the divine appellations associated with the other previously recognized deities, and earlier biblical records were edited to more closely conform with this monotheistic point of view. Monotheism achieved its apex in the writings of Isaiah and is carried on through to the end of the Old Testament. The New Testament continues with the monotheistic theme by teaching the supremacy of only one true God, now called the Father, but it also introduces two additional subordinate divine personalities, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Ghost, or Spirit of God. Since theological evolution and diversity characterize both the biblical and Mormon history, it would be unusual for current Mormon definitions of the divine names Elohim and Jehovah to coincide with the Bible's use of those names so we are going to examine how Elohim and Jehovah are used in the Bible and compares this with the current Mormon definitions and positions that the pre-existent Jesus Christ was Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. Now, most Latter-day Saints do not realize how often the names Elohim and Jehovah appear in the Old Testament because they have been translated from Hebrew into English. Elohim occurs 2,570 times and is closely related to El, which occurs some 238 times. Jehovah is by far the most frequently used Hebrew name for God in the Old Testament, occurring some 6,823 times. King James translators translated Elohim and El as God and Jehovah as Lord, all capitals. And they used Lord for the Hebrew word Adonai, which Hebrew biblical editors often substituted for Jehovah in the prophetic books out of respect for the divine name. So while Jehovah and Elohim appear very frequently in the Old Testament, these divine names do not designate two different gods with a father-son relationship as they do with Mormonism. Depending upon the intentions of the author, God may be referred to as Elohim, Jehovah, or Jehovah Elohim. Elohim has the Hebrew masculine plural ending, I-M, and can designate gods generally, the gods of Israel's neighbors, one of those gods, despite its technical plurality, or else Israel's God. Jehovah is the personal name of Israel's God as revealed to Moses in Exodus 6, 2, and 3. And hence it is never used in a plural sense, or ever designates anyone but Israel's God. Jehovah is used in combination with parallel to and as a synonym for El or Elohim. This is the relationship so far in the Bible record. The author of the second account of creation in Genesis 2 intentionally combined both these names, Jehovah Elohim, Lord God, to affirm that Jehovah is Elohim, the God at all times. So when reading several passages containing the original Hebrew names instead of the King James translations, shows the effort being made by the biblical authors to identify Elohim, or El, and Jehovah as being the same God. Here are a few of those scriptures. For Jehovah your Elohim is Elohim of Elohims, and Adonai of Adonai's, the great El, mighty and terrible. Thus Deuteronomy 10.17. I am Jehovah, the Elohim of Abraham thy father, and the Elohim of Isaac. Genesis 28.13. Another one. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Jehovah, the Elohim of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob hath sent me unto you. Exodus three, fourteen through fifteen. Another one Jehovah is El of the gods. Jehovah is El of the gods. He knows and let Israel itself know Joshua twenty two twenty two for Jehovah is the great El, the great. King over all the gods. Psalm 95 3. This intermixing of the names of God may be best understood by noting that El, or Elohim, was favored by the northern kingdom of Israel, while Judah, or the southern kingdom, preferred Jehovah. So biblical scholars have been able to trace two main sources of thought in the Old Testament the J source and the e or the elohistic source j is for jehovah e is for elohim source these two sources have been stitched together in the genesis account according to the j source jehovah was known among the patriarchs prior to the time of moses but the name Jeho- but according to the e source the patriarchs worshiped el and the name of Jehovah was not revealed until Moses' time. The Bible contains two accounts of creation, the first attributed to Elohim, the second to Jehovah, two accounts of the flood story interwoven together in Genesis 6 and 7, and many psalms which favor one name or the other. For example, Elohim is used four times as often for God as Jehovah is in Psalms chapters 42 through 83, while the rest of the Psalms use Jehovah 20 times as often as Elohim. So the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek approximately 280 BC. This version, the Septuagint, was the Bible of New Testament Christians. The New Testament was also written in Greek. In Greek, Jehovah and Adonai become Kyrios. Elohim becomes Theos when speaking of gods generally and Hotheos when speaking of the one true God. The New Testament uses both Hotheos and Kyrios to designate God the Father. Jesus is also called Kyrios in is only rarely called theos, and only once during Thomas' confession in John twenty twenty eight is he called hotheos. The fact that hotheos is used in the New Testament almost exclusively of the Father indicates that the Christians equated the Father, not the Son, with the God of Israel. Adding further confusion to sorting out the biblical usage of these words, the Hebrew word Adon also becomes Kyrios in Greek. Adon is used in the Old Testament, and Kyrios is used in the Septuagint and the Greek New Testament, and what these names mean is they designate men who are in a superior position to others, like kings or commanders, slave owners, teachers— it's also often used as an address of courtesy and respect. So when Lord appears in English translations, we may not automatically assume connotations of divinity. The context must be considered, as well as whether the translated word is Kyrios, Adon, Jehovah, or Adonai. For example, scholars have noted a difference between the application of Lord to Jesus during mortality and following his resurrection. They generally concur that during his lifetime, "curios" nearly always means sir or master. While after the resurrection, "curios" becomes a divine appellation. It becomes a title of God which he bestows upon Jesus. So here we see there is a dramatic contrast between the Old and the New Testament concepts of God the Father. God is spoken of as Father in the Old Testament only 15 times, and never in the sense of ancestor or progenitor of mankind, which is a common idea in the ancient Near Eastern myths. God is Father in the sense of Creator, as Father of Israel's, that is, God's firstborn, the nation he adopted out of all the peoples, and also as having Israel's kings as adopted sons. Now, there are no examples in the Old Testament of God, whether Elohim or Jehovah, being explicitly invoked in prayer as father either. There are likewise no Old Testament references to God as father of a divine son through whom he creates and makes contacts with the world Either. When we get to the New Testament, however, the four Gospels alone quote Jesus calling God Father some 170 times. And then he does note a concept of Jesus calling God Abba, which means Daddy, but that has been proven false by later subsequent scholarship that he did not know of at this time. So the Jews would have considered that disrespectful, of course. Within the first century, Abba became the favorite Christian name for God, and Paul explains its significance in Galatians 4 and Romans 8. Early Christians reserved Father for God alone. Jesus bears witness to the name of the Father, but he is never called Father himself in the Bible. The name of God bestowed upon Jesus after his resurrection as a result of his obedience was Lord, in the full divine sense of the term. As Paul explained, to us there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. The monotheistic theology of the Old Testament designated its God by either Elohim or Jehovah, although Jehovah is the predominant name, Jehovah was not known as one member of a divine triad, either as father or son. Although comparisons might be made between Jehovah and the various divine paternal pantheons worshipped by several of Israel's neighbors, Israel itself did not seem to consider Jehovah subject to any other god, paternal or otherwise. Indeed, Israel considered Jehovah superior to all the other gods worshipped by her neighbors— All of the hosts of heaven were subjected to Jehovah. He was the sole creator of heaven, earth, humans, including the spirits of human beings. No other God directed him in these creative acts. The Israelites were thus commanded, I am Jehovah thy Elohim, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other Elohim before me. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our Elohim is one Jehovah, and thou shalt love Jehovah thy Elohim with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Is there an Elohim beside me? Yea, there is no Elohim, I know not any. I am Jehovah, and there is none else. There is no Elohim beside me. Well, these passages exclude the possibility that the Israelites considered Jehovah to be the son of some other supreme being or found that they could worship any other being. Instead, they offered him sacrifices. They built altars to him. They burned incense for him in the temple, and they addressed prayers directly to him give ear to my words o jehovah consider my meditation hearken unto the voice of my cry my king and my god for unto thee i will pray my voice shall thou hear in the morning o jehovah in the morning will i direct my prayer unto thee that psalm 5 Jehovah hath heard my supplication, Jehovah will receive my prayer. That's Psalm 6, 9. So Jehovah promises his people who pass through the refining fire, then they will invoke me by name, and I myself will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they shall say Jehovah is our God. That's the famous uh, prophecy in Zechariah 13, 9. Well, the New Testament, likewise, does not mention any God superior to Jehovah. Now, that's interesting. Its overall message seems to be that the God of the Old Testament sent Jesus as his son into the world to redeem it. For example, Peter tells the Israelites, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up. So evidence suggests that Jesus himself accepted Jewish monotheism and he considered Jehovah to be his father. The New Testament contains no evidence that he ever taught his disciples of a God superior to Jehovah, the God of Israel. So in light of Jesus' desire to bear witness of the Father and to advocate his true worship, it would seem peculiar that he did not instruct the Jews to worship a God superior to Jehovah if he considered himself to be, in fact, Jehovah. On the contrary, Jesus consistently advocated the worship of the God of Israel by citing the Old Testament commandment, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, Jehovah thy Elohim, and him only shalt thou serve. So as a Jewish male, Jesus certainly would have been taught from his youth to recite the Shema at least twice daily. This liturgical creed was understood to be a confession of monotheism, that there is no other God than Jehovah. Jesus answered a scribe's question concerning the greatest commandment by citing a portion of it. Here's what he said. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our Elohim is one Jehovah. And thou shalt love Jehovah thy Elohim with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Well, the scribe confirmed, affirmed, that there was one God, and there is none other but He. And Jesus' response to this was, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. So this one God, according to Jesus, was the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and of Jacob. In John 8, 54, Jesus identified the God of Israel as his father. Listen to what he says to the Jews. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Of course, Jesus knew that the God of the Jews was Jehovah. Jesus's pattern of worship and prayer followed the Jewish practices current in his day. Remember, he considered the temple, which the Israelites had built for Jehovah, incidentally, he considered that temple to be his father's house, John 2.16. He was familiar with, and probably practiced, the three daily times of formal prayer, all of which were addressed to Jehovah. According to Jeremiah, the tefillah, or the afternoon prayer, contained the following two striking solemn invocations of God. Blessed be thou, Lord, our God, and the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, great God, mighty and fearful, most high God, master of heaven and earth. And Jeremiah's comments, he says when Jesus speaks of God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and when he ordinarily so sparing in the use of divine names calls God Lord of heaven and earth in Matthew eleven twenty five. Well this twofold coincidence with the wording of the first benediction of the tefillah indicates Jesus' familiarity with it. And beyond these three traditional Jewish prayers, Jesus prayed more personally addressing God as Father. Now, the only scriptural example of Jesus calling upon God by invoking a divine name is when he gave his cry on the cross. My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, why hast thou forsaken me? A quotation of Psalm 22, 1, a chapter which influenced the crucifixion narrative at many points in the Gospel of Matthew, as did Psalm 22. Well, the uncompromising monotheism of the Shema was equally fundamental to the Christians. Paul essentially Christianized the Shema when he wrote, There is none other God but one. To us, there is but one God. See, in all of his letters, Paul consistently identified this one God as the Father. And on at least two occasions, he specifically identified him as being "'the God of my fathers.' "'He never equated Jesus and God, "'but he saw Jesus as subordinate to God the Father. "'For Paul, Jesus was not the God "'of the Old Testament come to earth. "'He was rather the Son of God, "'who by virtue of his total obedience to the Father "'in submitting himself to death on the cross "'was highly exalted.'" after resurrection by God and given a name which is above every name. The name above every name was the name of God the Father himself, Lord, or Kurios, the Greek equivalent of Jehovah. So, in transferring the title Lord from the Father to Christ, the early Christians perceived... Christ as performing in the role of God, and Christ's authority became cosmic in scope, although he occupied his exalted status to the glory of God the Father, the Christians preserved monotheism by speaking of Jesus' throne as no rival to the Father's throne, Revelation 3.21. So at this stage of New Testament Christology, Christians accustomed to calling Christ Kyrios would sometimes apply to him Old Testament passages originally referring to the God of Israel. And F.F. Bruce Bruce explains this. He says, For Greek-speaking Christians to whom Jesus was the Kyrios or Lord par excellence, It was an easy matter to understand Kyrios in the Greek Old Testament to refer to him. If, again, actions ascribed to Yahweh in the Exodus wilderness narratives are elsewhere ascribed to his angel, the one of whom he said, My name is in him, then the interpretation of this special angel in terms of the Son of God before his incarnation presents no difficulty. Jesus, however never quoted Old Testament passages about Kyrios with reference to himself, but always with reference to God the Father. Coleman summarized the effect of Jesus receiving the name Lord this way. Here's how he puts it. The designation of Jesus as Kyrios has the further consequence that actually all the titles of honor for God himself, with the exception of Father, may be transferred to Jesus. Once he was given the name which is above every name, God's own name, Lord, Adonai, Kyrios, then no limitations at all could be set for the transfer of divine attributes to him. So, both the Father and the Son are ascribed the roles and titles of Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Creator, Judge, I Am, Alpha and Omega, etc. in the New Testament. Interestingly, most passages referring to Jesus as Savior also designate God the Father as Savior in the Old Testament sense of the word, which have no connotation of atonement, but rather instead refer to rescue from pain or trouble or enemies john's gospel written late in the first century goes far beyond the synoptic gospels in attributing divinity to jesus and perhaps comes closest to identifying jesus with the god of the old testament by having jesus refer to himself in john 8:58 and other verses as ego eimi i am since Jehovah gave his name to Moses as I am, many have concluded that Jesus was attempting to identify himself as the God of Israel. That makes sense, right? Harner interprets John's intent not as identifying Jesus as the same I am who revealed himself to Moses, but rather as implying that Jesus was also divine and shared the divine nature of the Father. John's theme throughout his gospel, the Word was with God, hotheos, and the Word was God, theos. He attributes John's I am to the septuagint translation of anihu and anoki, anoki anokihu, I am he. In monotheistic, Isaiah, rather than to Exodus. And what happens now is this stresses John's emphasis of subordinate and obedient relationship of the Son to the Father whenever he had Jesus saying, Ego Ami. So many biblical scholars have noted the important role of Psalm 110 1 in influencing early Christians to apply Lord to Christ. The Lord Jehovah said to my Lord, Adonai, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In the Septuagint, Jehovah and Adonai were translated Kyrios. The New Testament ascribes to Jesus the role of the second Kyrios Adonai, who was invited to sit at God's, that is, at Jehovah's right hand. So New Testament scholars quote or allude to Psalm one ten one more than any other Old Testament passage 33 times with reference to Jesus. So we can see how they're beginning to shift the uh, interpretation here. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, all powers in heaven, earth, and under the earth become subject to Christ. When God grants him the name Lord, Curios, just as in Psalm 110, 1 the Lord is the master of all the enemies, when Jehovah invites him to sit at his right hand. So Acts 2.36 caps an argument that Jesus is both Kurios and Christ, based on his resurrection and exaltation, to the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110, 1 So, clearly then, the New Testament Christians identified the first Kyrios, Jehovah, spoken of in this psalm with God the Father. So, Jesus himself cited this psalm. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. And he saith unto them, Well, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? That's Matthew 22, 41 through 46. So the New Testament is portraying Jesus as consciously identifying his mission with the suffering servant of Jehovah, who is spoken of in Isaiah who would reestablish the covenant between God and Israel. Jehovah hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened up his not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. In the Gospels, Jesus obviously rejects the traditional Jewish expectations of a militant political king descended from David, and he describes his role in terms similar to Isaiah's suffering servant. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and be killed, and after three days rise again. See the conversion of the Ethiopian Enoch in Acts 8 demonstrates early Christian belief that Jesus was the servant of Jehovah, described in Isaiah 53, because Philip reads this passage to the eunuch and explains that it refers to Jesus. So the New Testament Christians, who equated Jesus with the suffering servant of Jehovah, would not have considered him to be Jehovah himself come to earth. Further, Jesus specifically cited his appointment from Jehovah by reading Isaiah 61 1. The Spirit of Jehovah is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the broken hearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, so on and so forth. The Jews expected their Messiah to be the anointed one of Jehovah, following the designation of Israel's king by that title. As Jehovah anointed, the Messiah would turn all nations to the worship of Jehovah the true God. So, Here's how Micah predicted it, the Old Testament prophet. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little to be among the class of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins is from old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and feed his flock in this strength of Jehovah, in the majesty of the name of Jehovah his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be a man of peace. So, neither the Old Testament messianic prophecies, nor its discussions of a suffering servant, which the New Testament authors applied to Jesus, support the idea of Jehovah coming to earth himself to enact those roles instead they portray jehovah god ascending the messiah his servant into the world so the current mormon definition of elohim and jehovah with jesus identified as the god of israel differ from the biblical record Now, when we see efforts of Mormon expositors to harmonize these definitions with the Bible, this has led to much misunderstanding and, unfortunately, the manipulation of the Scriptures. For example, biblical passages which refer to Jehovah in the context of being the Father, these have been mistranslated to make them refer to Elohim. And he's talking about Bruce R. McConkie's materials. And I'm not going to get into all the details. There are several footnotes here, and I'm getting high up in time. Maybe I'll do the details in another podcast. Scriptural prayers addressed to Jehovah have been diluted with the interpretation that they are merely spontaneous manifestations of joy and worship and adoration of our Savior, rather than true prayers addressed to God the Father. So this interpretation has been made necessary by the Mormon belief that all true worship and prayer should be directed to God the Father and not to the Son, according to Bruce R. McConkie. If Jesus were literally Jehovah, the God of Israel then the Israelites were indeed worshiping and praying to the Son, to the exclusion of the Father. Now, the LDS scholar Lowell L. Benyon, commenting on this dilemma, observed that when Christ was on the earth, he taught his disciples to worship the Father. It doesn't seem logical to me that Christ would ask in the Old Testament to be worshiped, and not have the Father worshiped, as in other scriptures, in other dispensations." Jews and their Old Testament ancestors considered Elohim and Jehovah to be two names for God, which both refer to a single deity in monotheism. And further, Biblical messianic prophecies, in which the Messiah is obviously described as the servant of Jehovah, have been misunderstood or reinterpreted, the titles of Jehovah, such as Savior, Redeemer of Israel, etc., have been removed from their Old Testament context and meaning and paralleled with those same titles of Jesus in the New Testament in order to provide and promote the Jehovah Christ identification, according to Bruce R. McConkey and uh, Peterson and others. The divine investiture harmonizing concept where the son speaks and acts in the first person as if he was the father this has been invoked whenever the scriptures report that god makes appearances and gives revelations to human beings this has been made necessary because of the current mormon concept today that all revelation since the fall of adam has come through the Son. interestingly however these same scriptural passages are often cited in Mormonism as evidence of the Father's physical anthropomorphic nature. Now, B.H. Roberts did argue persuasively that Jesus was Jehovah in his book, of the Jew. His earlier work, The Mormon Doctrine of Deity, argues perhaps only for the sake of polemics that the anthropomorphic references to God in the Old Testament are evidence of the true nature of God the Father. Father. So, whatever argument is possible for the current LDS definitions of Elohim and Jehovah from Mormon sources, it has to be admitted that these definitions do not accord with the biblical use of these terms. Apologists, aware of this problem, have been forced to conclude that the entire biblical record as we now have it has been so systematically corrupted and edited through the centuries that all indications of a theology more in conformity with current Mormonism definitions have been obliterated. And his next point here is fabulous. Modern textual criticism and comparisons of the many available ancient manuscripts of the Bible do not lend much support to such a radical thesis. Yeah. However, likewise, efforts to show parallels between Mormonism and the polytheism of the patriarchal era also seem misdirected. This approach is similar to the parallelomania, which intrigued many church members during the late 60s and 70s with the publications of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Gnostic codices. Their significance greatly diminishes when these passages are returned to their original historical and literary context, however. And truly, the vast majority of the theology and the religious practices of the groups that produce them would shock and confound most Mormons. The same may be said of the early Near Eastern polytheistic mythology. So. Uh, We can hope, and it would be otherwise, religious history clearly demonstrates that perfect doctrinal harmony cannot be found within the Bible. It can't be found within Mormonism, and it can't be found in a comparison of both Mormonism and the Bible. Now, although God may be infallible, uh, we humans aren't. That's just what we have to face even inspired men in their canonized writings demonstrably vary greatly in their perceptions of God. Perhaps Brigham Young said it best when he explained, even the best of the Latter-day Saints have but a faint idea of the attributes of the deity, Were the former and Latter-day Saints with their apostles and prophets and seers and revelators collected together to discuss this matter, I am led to think there would be found a great variety in their views and feelings upon this subject without direct revelation from the Lord. It is as much my right to differ from other men as it is theirs to differ from me, in points of doctrine and principle, when our minds cannot at once arrive at the same conclusions. And then here's my note to that. It's not your right to enforce us to accept your, quote, doctrinal views, however. But this is what Mormonism does. And one very prominent example is Elder Bruce Armikonky's letter to the great English scholar Eugene England, where he basically told him, shut up and quit teaching false doctrine. My job is to guide the church and teach true doctrine. Your job is to shut up and follow me and believe me. Yeah. Such authoritarian priesthood just does nothing for me personally, so well he he ends by saying, we should be more cognizant and tolerant of the doctrinal diversity if we're interested in an accurate perception of our religious heritage and the significance of current beliefs. All right, recognizing doctrinal ambiguity perhaps does not produce the security of orthodox absolutes, but it rather requires us to acknowledge, as did Paul that we must be content to see through a glass darkly until the day when that which is perfect is come well in that case they need to quit telling us we have to believe everything they teach us or we're we're being threatened with our eternal lives and losing our families so see the, the cheap pop Mormon psychology uh, does not take that into consideration so anyway that is the second very excellent article by Boyd Kirtland, my next podcast that I would like to share with you again on this theme of the phenomenal, interestingly, contradictory, inconclusive, uh, kind of weird, wild morphing of the Mormon understanding of God. I want to read uh, the chapter on God the Father in Charles Harrell's book, This is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology. And he has an absolutely phenomenal amount of interesting information and comparison contrasts just like Boyd Kirtland, except with another point of view, which I believe is very valuable. I am going to be having Boyd Kirtland on a podcast here just shortly within a few weeks. I'm looking very forward to having him on my podcast and sharing more insights from his mouth directly and then I will continue sharing more materials out of his book and I have much other materials I will get into on this fantastically interesting subject of God in Mormonism. They think they have solved the problems and they have the answers, the historical conclusions which they do not share with us in church demonstrates pretty much the exact opposite. So thank you for listening to the new BYP podcasts. More to come as soon as I can.